Let me ask you a quick question as we get into the Word. Uh, what do you hope for that person that you just met? Think about that for a second. What would you hope for that person that you just met in the next 30 or 40 minutes? Now let me ask you, will, will you hope that for yourself too? So as we go into this, let's go in to, with our hearts open and see what God has for us. Michael, are you our reader today? Or is Jenny? Jenny, yes. Do you all know Jenny? We are lucky to have Jenny reading for us today. You can, I think, pull that down. There you go. Uh, we, what we've been doing for the last several weeks, and we're about to come to the end of this series, is we asked ourselves, does change ever really happen? And if it does happen, how does it happen? Because all of us want change. We all have something in our lives that we would love to see change. And we even have this idea that if it did change, then over there, that place of that changed, that that's better than here, which is unchanged. And so a lot of us try different things from reading books to all kinds of crazy stuff from uh, changing the color of our hair to wanting to change how much we weigh to changing whatever about our lives to try to get over there. But it seems like we always kind of get stuck on our pursuit because what sticks us is us. The one thing that seems to prevent us from changing is me. So how do we change when it's me that needs to change, but me doesn't have the power to change me. So we've been talking about that in the context of the Bible and Jesus and God and church because church tends to use that kind of language all the time, you know, transformation, change, revival, you know, all it makes all these promises. And does that really happen? Like, seriously, are you radically changed? So uh, we said, well, let's see what the Bible has to say about that. So we've been in Second Peter chapter 1, and Jenny, would you be so kind to begin to read for us? Sure. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Okay, stop there. I'm going to be gentle with you. You know, if it was Michael up here, I'd kind of abuse you like I did last week. But, okay, we've been talking about this. Let me review for us. Guys, we hear that verse up there, and we yawn. Uh, like, like, do you hear? Like, okay, it's like me saying to you, this Christmas, you're going to be given so much that you will never want anything else for the rest of your life. Okay. I mean, that's what this is saying. This is outrageous. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. If that's true, why do Christians not live in that? Why do we? Why do we live as if, we're lacking? Why do we live as if we need more? Why do we live in worry? Why do we live in fear? Why do we live in regret? Why do we spend so much time in yesterday? Why do we spend so much time in tomorrow? Why do we not just camp out in the present moment of absolutely given everything we need for life and godliness? Is that true? It must not be. I don't experience it. But scripture says it is true. So change is already taking place because if I'm in Christ, I've got everything. So how do I know that? How do I live in that? So how do we, Jenny? Through <laughs> I actually don't have a sermon prepared. Could you just... No. <laughs> Go ahead. Okay. So Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises, so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So he said, here's one of our clues. Because as believers, when we participate with God... We begin to see that we have everything we need. Actually, here, get this, underline this. If you get nothing out of today, take this away. If you are in Christ, transformation is already taking place. What's limited is your ability to see that transformation. What's limited is your ability to grasp that transformation. But when we participate with the divine, then we begin to see it. So how do we participate with the divine? How do you participate with the divine, Jenny? You're married to Michael, and he's divine. Absolutely. I think he's divine. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. Okay, stop there, because we said the way I participate with the divine is I do it by faith. And faith is not me manufacturing something and then giving it to God in exchange. God gives me salvation and everything else. 
We actually studied a few weeks ago how even faith is a gift from God. That God gave us what we needed so that we had the capacity to grasp everything that we've been given. There's a mind blower. But then we have this beautiful invitation by God to participate with this gift so that we can fully see. How do we participate? We add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge and to knowledge self-control and to self-control perseverance and to perseverance godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love keep reading please for if you possess these qualities in increase increasing measure they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our lord jesus christ but if anyone does not have them he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. Way to push through there. All right. Even though you couldn't see the words. Thank you, Jenny. Awesome job. That was such a sad applause y'all just gave her. It was kind of like, yeah, we should do this. But cheesery. You know, uh, here's the interesting thing. The whole reason that Peter is writing this is so that you won't be ineffective and unproductive. In other words, he says, I don't want you to miss out on what life was made for. I want you to step into the flow of what your very life was made for. Matter of fact, he said this, that if you're not, as a Christian, living, in a, if you're not living effective and productive in your knowledge of what we're talking about here, you've become blind, nearsighted, and blind. If you're nearsighted, what, what is right with you? Y'all know? You can see close. So you can't be nearsighted and blind, can you? That's impossible. So what is he talking about? You're going to have to come back and find out because we're not talking about that today. But Peter is trying to point out to us clearly, clearly something is broke if the reality of what we're talking about is not exploding into your own life. So we talked about that I add to my faith goodness, and then goodness, what is it, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness. Last week we talked about piety and how do I live my life, you know, uh, in front of other people. And this week we come to brotherly kindness. So what's up with this? I almost burst into the song, what's up with that? But I sing that around the office way too much, so I won't do that today. What, why, is, why is Peter, I mean, I understand the whole God stuff, you know, and godliness, and we talked about knowledge and stuff, but why now is he throwing in brotherly kindness, or your version of the Scriptures may say brotherly love? Why, why this? Because I know that all this other stuff we've talked about, if you want to put it in categories that's pretty modern language, Jesus is not in the business of giving you a ticket to heaven. Jesus is in the business of making you real. He's in the business of making a real, live people. That's why last week we talked about you're either going to live in your inauthentic self, and you're going to be controlling, you're going to be destructive, and you're going to be selfish, or you're going to step out of the inauthenticity of that way of life into the real life that God's calling us into. Here's what I want you to hear. God is saying that unless you're doing this, you're not going to understand this. Unless you're having horizontal relationships, you're going to be limited in understanding your vertical relationship. Let me, give you, uh, let me give you an example. Has anybody ever done something to you that you said, I don't know if I can forgive that? Have they? Like in the last 24 hours? <laughs> Maybe so. I cannot believe he cut me off in traffic. I don't know who he is, but I will never forgive him. You know, no, honestly, has anybody ever done that to you to where you thought, no, that's that Boom, I'm shutting the door. I'll never talk to you again. I'll never treat you with grace again. I don't want to ever see you again. I will never forgive you. And then you hear these words. The Lord says, what? Forgive. You know, pray for those who persecute you. Well, let me tell you something. When you begin to do this on that level, boy, you want to talk about what changes is me understanding how much I'm forgiven. 
Because the only way I find that kind of forgiveness is I get back in touch with how much I'm forgiven. It's just like, have you ever tried to love somebody that's really hard to love? If you haven't ever had that experience, then you're probably a hermit and you've never loved anybody because we're all hard to love, all right? But like love that, like, like I don't know if I can do this. And we go to the gospel, and the gospel says we don't love and find that in some place. We are loved, and because we are loved, then we can love. If I'm having a hard time loving somebody, it's not that my lover is broke. It's me receiving love that's broke. That's what the gospel is all about. That's why the Lord says that we, we don't just generously give. We give out of what has what? Been given to us. God has given me everything. And this is a beautiful story because everything you have is from the Lord. Right? You're in church. You're supposed to agree with that. Yes, Jesus gave me everything. All right? And then, but that also means that what you don't have, Jesus decided not to give you. Oh, no. Meaning, if you say, I don't have enough to be generous, hockey. That's just not true. I don't know why I just said hockey. All right? <laughs> Softball. Baseball. Soccer. I'm generous because everything I have is from the Lord, which means he's given me everything I need for life and godliness, which means what I have now is sufficiency for me to do what he has called me to do. When he calls me to generosity, then I can be generous with what I have, even if I have very little next to nothing, because I know even that little next to nothing is what he gave me, and that's what he's asking me to give out of. Is that right? Oh, but let me tell you, when I got to give it to you, it hurts. Because it takes me back to, God, why didn't you give me more? Which opens my eyes to, I gave you enough. Which makes me question, do you really love me? Which then I have to realize, yes, okay, you do love me. You see how this works? I would even go so far as to say to this, if you want to be real, you got to do this. And here's what I'm saying to you. When I, and here's the, the direction I want us to take just for a few minutes, all right? And then we're going to go into some more singing. And hopefully let your heart respond to this. Uh, if you can imagine these chairs representing relationships. If you're a believer here today, if you've had this experience that we're talking about up here, uh, and when he says brotherly kindness, he's not talking about how are you going to be kind when you're eating your, your cheesery today? Or how are you going to be nice here I think what he's talking about is very close and abiding friendships. I think what he's talking about is that kind of friendship where literally that person gets into the inner part of who you are. I think what he's talking about is those kind of friendships where you're so vulnerable with another person that they really can turn it on you. I'm talking about the kind of friendships to where, well, we'll talk about that in just a minute. But I don't think that if you've experienced this, you don't have the option not to experience this. This is hardcore. I believe that God is saying to you as a believer, being all alone is not an option for you. You don't have that option. I know what some of you are thinking. Because I've been there. Some of you are saying, I've done this before. I've done it before. And uh, I'll tell you something. I've been vulnerable before, and I've been honest before. And I've been so hurt by the person that was sitting in that chair. I don't want to do it anymore. You know what? I may look like everything's okay here at this group. And I may smile, and I may know people that... You know, I go out with on Friday nights and hang out with the nice. But God knows and I know that there is a wall right here and nobody's getting through it. Ain't nobody going to hurt me like that anymore. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. I don't care if God's saying I got to do it. I ain't doing it. You're probably the person in this room where God is shouting at you. And whoever shook your hand, I pray that they're praying for you. Because this is not where God wants you to be. Then there's some here in this room going, Oh, dude, I've been looking for that all my life. I want a friend. I want that kind of friend. Yes, I want to travel with that kind of friend. 
but they're not here. You know, I've been lonely for so long for that kind of friend. Some of you may be sitting here going, you know what, I've been waiting and waiting and waiting, and God hasn't given that kind of friend at all. Matter of fact, uh, we live in a culture, guys, where it's a profoundly lonely culture. Um, Interesting, I've been reading uh, Generation Me. I quoted it a few weeks ago by uh, Jean Twangy, and uh, she is uh, taking a bunch of research about your generation. And when I say your generation, is if you were born after 1975, uh, then this, is, this book is about research on you. Uh, for the rest of you that were born before that, this is your moment to personally gloat over what losers they are because our generation has it all together. Okay, all right. Here's what she says. It's almost as if we're starving for affection. There's a kind of famine of warm interpersonal relations, of easy-to-reach neighbors, of encircling and exclusive memberships, and of solid family life. This is an argument made by political scientist Robert Lane. To make the analogy a little further, we're malnourished from eating a junk food diet of instant messages, emails, text, phone calls, and Facebook, rather than the healthy food of live, in-person interaction. It helps explain a new kind of get-together that's popped up in cities around the country called cuddle parties. Have you heard of these? Oh, wait. It's a deliberate... Deliberately non-sexual, though usually co-ed gathering where pajama-clad people can enjoy the hugs and touches of others, overseen by a cuddle lifeguard on duty who keeps things friendly and non-threatening. These are people that come together in pajamas and cuddle each other, complete strangers. Don't laugh. When we said cheesery, what we really meant was. So what do you do? I mean, if you're hurt, what do you do if you're scared about this? What do you do if it doesn't seem that there's anybody to engage in this and you're lonely? How do you do that when Jesus is saying, do that? Well, last week when we talked about piety, when we talked about this whole idea of godliness, what we talked about is we're living a life in front of people. And, and we're not just, we're not trying to put forth this, you know, uh, this Christian persona that we've got it all together, because that's just, that's hockey. You know what I mean? All right? Because it's not true. But what is, what is this piety? This piety is we have a firm grasp on the depth of our need, our own repentance, our own brokenness before the Lord, our own hunger for God to give us life but we also have a great grasp on God's grace. And when these two things come together, they embrace the cross, and we we live out a real life before people that grasps the tragedy but celebrates the joy. You know, that's the only kind of person that can enter into what we're talking about. So as we come to this, I want you to hear the words that you've probably heard before. If you want a great friend... You've got to be a great friend. Y'all have heard that since you're like in third grade. Now you've got to be a good friend, you know. But let's talk about that because uh, it's an interesting thing that Emerson and Lewis, C.S. Lewis, kind of agree on something together. That, uh, that if you're looking for a friend, you're probably never going to find one. Matter of fact, if, if you're living in a real life, and you're desperately looking for a friend, you're probably completely frustrated because you've not been able to find one. And Lewis would say the reason that you've not been able to find one is because that's not how friends are born. He would say friendships are not born because it's two needy people that are saying, I'll meet your needs. It's not two people that face the chair one to another and long into one another's eyes. Lewis said friendship is born a little differently than this is more romantic. Listen to what he says. Friendship, well, this is actually a guy named David Beener who wrote Sacred Companion. 
great book, and he draws Lewis into what he's about to say. Friendship involves passion. In contrast to romantic love, where the passion is between the individual, in friendship, the passion is shared in relation to something outside of the friendship. Friends share a love of at least one thing, be it an idea, politics, arts, or the spiritual journey. Apart from this, there would be nothing for the friendship to be about. As noted by Lewis, those who have nothing can share nothing. Listen to this statement. This is Lewis. Those who are going nowhere can have no fellow travelers. The sense of being kindred soul is therefore based on shared passions regarding important aspects of life. Now, this is interesting because what he's saying is, is that a friendship is not born face to face. A friendship is born shoulder to shoulder. What it means is, is a friend is someone that I find myself in companion with as I'm going on a journey. And Lewis goes on to talk about in his four loves that the depth of your journey will determine the depth of this friendship. In other words, if the journey that you're going on is, I just want to taste every different kind of beer in Nashville, all right? That, my friend, is a profound journey. Trust me, it will get you somewhere. I don't know where. It'll get you somewhere. And you will find companions. Trust me, after the red dress race yesterday, did anybody run in the red dress race? Okay? Those people had something in common. When I passed the Mexican restaurant on Belmont Boulevard and there were 100 men in red dresses, uh, they shared something, and it was something, all right? And so if this journey is going somewhere shallow, then this friendship will be shallow. But if this, if this journey is going somewhere profound, then the depth of my friendships here will be profound. In other words, Lewis says, it's not that we look at each other, but it's a truth that we look at together. We say things like, oh, you too, or did you see that? That's why when Christ brings us together as brothers and sisters in Christ, that we see the glory of the gospel, that we together are seeing by participating with the divine that we've been given everything we need for life and godliness. So now my friendships are in a companion of seeing the wonders of what God has done for me and what he's done for you so that we can grasp these things together and journey together in helping each other be what Christ has called us to be. We know that's kind of true. I mean, I think about uh, when I was in college, all the guys in my freshman dorm room, I mean, uh, wow, we became instant friends. You know, none of us knew where to go on the campus. None of us knew anybody on the campus. We came from all different parts of the world, and yet we were thrown together and we became great friends. We had a common journey that we were going on. Also, think about... Uh, a few years back, I was snow skiing up in Colorado, and uh, my son and I were in the hot tub, and all these old people came and jumped in the hot tub. I mean, like, old people, like, scary, like, you need more clothes on old, you know? And they came jumping into the hot tub, and we're like, who are you guys? And they were, they were all, like, uh, like, green beret seals. I forget what they were, but, like, they all killed people together, and you know, and now every year for the last 50 years, they gather at this ski resort and, uh, and their journey, you know, they, they had a journey together and it was so profoundly impacted their lives that even to this day, they gather together to reminisce, to encourage one another, even though the journey is over. Well, the journey that God calls us over on is not over. It is an unfolding beauty and mystery that we get to participate in one another's lives. So how do we do that? I just, can I just take some liberty this morning? And I just want to say to you guys that as a community, as Midtown Fellowship, if this is the place that you're doing life, then I hope that you would ask the Lord, who in this place is coming alongside of me? Who am I coming alongside of? Who am I journeying with? See, Scripture even says that the way you do this the world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. 
It's not just a cordial, I'm going to be nice to you and say thank you. This is a deep, abiding journey of love, which I think God is saying, you don't have the option not to be a part of it. You need this right here. So how do we become that kind of friend? I'm sure we could all stand up here and say, you know, a friend is, and but since none of y'all get to come up here, uh, then I get to do it, all right? So let me just point out a couple things that I think are critical that Scripture teaches us about how to become a good friend. The first thing I think a friend needs to be in this journey that we're talking about is someone that I make room in my life for. Simply put, I'm going to give you space in my schedule. Proverbs 17, 17 says that a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. This is the kind of space that I'm making for you that when you call me at 2 in the morning and I look over and see that it's your number, I'm getting out of bed. You know, this is the kind of friend that I really am allowing myself to be inconvenienced by you. I remember uh, a few years back when I went on one of my prayer retreats, I was kind of particularly just kind of burned out. And I'd shared with uh, Dave, who many of you know here, that, you know, the hardest thing about these prayer retreats for me, Dave, are the first, you know, 12 to 14 hours. Just kind of unplugging and getting plugged into God. So I was going to this cabin out in the middle of nowhere that took just like hours to get to. There's no cell phone reception. There's no internet. There's no television, no cable, nothing that could really make me feel more connected to Jesus and so, you know, I'm going up there, and I get there, and I get in the cabin, and it's one of those cabins where you really feel like that, like you had to evacuate the critters before you could walk in, you know? I mean, it was rustic, like rustic. So I'm sitting down, and I'm feeling like depressed, like, you know, okay, God, here I am. What am I going to do? And about 30 minutes later, that's when the door got kicked in. And it was Dave with another one of our buddies who had pulled up in a truck with a boat, and they said, hey, man, we're going to help you transition to prayer time. <laughs> Get in the boat. We're going fishing. And they took me fishing, and we caught a bunch of fish, and they came back and fried it. And when I got up the next morning, they were gone. They got up early and left so that I could begin my time again. What, what kind of friendship is that? It says, I, my friend needs me. I'm going to put on the brakes. He's not asking for it. We're going to drive hours up in the middle of nowhere. We're going to haul a boat with us. We're going to fish, and then we're going to get up at 2 in the morning, and we're going to leave so that when he wakes up in the morning, he doesn't have to look at us. Is that friendship? That friend understands the journey I'm on because he's on the same journey. And he goes, what you need, I'll serve. See, if I don't make room for you in my life like that, when you call, I'm going to be angry. When I don't make room in my schedule for a friend like that, when I see their need, I'm going to despise it. When I see what they really need, like, you know, I'm going to say things like, I really ought to, I really should, a good friend would, but my heart's not engaged with it. And so anything that you're asking me to do is driving us apart, not bringing us together because now I see you as an imposition on my life. In other words, <laughs> you've heard this before, but listen to it. It is a turning away from me to turning toward you. I'm going to quit being so selfish, and I'm going to let somebody else have room in my life. A few years back, this was about, well, this was about eight years ago, a good friend of mine that we had been through many journeys together uh, called me weeping because his son had been arrested on drug charges. And, uh, and he said, uh, next week uh, may be the most difficult day of my life because that's when he's sentenced. So I, I prayed with him, and I knew that was going to be a hard day for him. Middle of that night, I got up, and I drove 10 hours to stand with my friend while his son was being sentenced. Had dinner with him, got in my car and turned around and drove back. 20 hours for an hour and a half of just so somebody doesn't have to stand alone? I'm telling you guys, 
If you're going to go on this journey, you've got to make room for that. You have got to make room in your life to look at another person and say, I value more than me. You're more important than my sleep. You're more important than my money. You're more important than my time. I'm going to give you that kind of value. In Proverbs 18.24, it actually says, I love having that up there. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Here's what I'm telling you. Just oh, This is what Scripture is saying. You're not going to have a lot of these. If you have one, if you have two, you are a lucky person. I remember uh, it was interesting <clears throat> listening to a speaker speak. This was a guy in his 70s. And he says, uh, he says, my goal in my friendship life is to have uh, six men that won't look at their watch during my funeral. I said, six men, why? And he goes, one for each handle. And what did he mean by they won't look at their watch? That when I die, they lose something. He said, that's all I want in my life. Six men that value me enough that my funeral is not a bore to them, but it's a deep sense of loss. I'm telling you, with, with compassion, Facebook is, is, is blowing me away. I never knew so many people wanted to be my friend in my whole life. And I never thought that I could care so little about so many people. I love Zimbad, the comedian. Have you ever seen this guy? He's outrageous, just hilarious. He has this new uh, routine where he's talking about life after 50. And he says, you know, when you get after 50, you only really want one friend. And that is, you just if you don't show up, then you want one friend that will come over to your house and look in the window, and if they see your feet, they'll call 911. I thought, well, that's, that's beautiful because... We, do, we need somebody who says, when you don't show up, I'm going to come looking for you. Do you have that? Like, do you have somebody? I'm not talking about the 500 friends on Facebook. I'm talking about, do you have the one friend that when they don't see you, when you don't show up, they're going, huh? Do you have the kind of friend that when you don't answer your phone, they'll actually come and knock on your door? Think about that. When was the last time you knocked on somebody's door to see if they were home? That you'll go looking. Do you have a friend that will do that for you? We need that. The second thing uh, that I would encourage you to do is that you'd make room in your heart. Not just room in your schedule, but you also would make room in your heart. Now, we're going to go at this a little backwards, so stick with me. In Proverbs, it says that if you find honey... Eat just enough, too much of it, and you will vomit. It really says that in the Bible. I'm not kidding. And then it says, why is it telling us that about honey? It's not worried about our diet. It's talking about friendships. Because it says, seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you, and he will hate you. (laughs) What is it saying? When I make room in my heart... The first thing I do in making room for my heart is I see you as a person. And I see you as a person that I'm going to be sensitive to. I see you as a person that I want to be careful that our friendship doesn't become a nuisance to you. I'm going to be careful that I practice being aware of the space that you need. In other words, we all have expectations when we come to friendships. We all have these expectations. Part of making room for you in my heart is I've got to push the expectations out of my heart so I can make room for you in my heart. Well, good friends do this. Good friends do that. You know, I I called you, and you didn't call me back. So I guess we're just not friends anymore. That's all based on expectations. I texted you 32 times last night, and you never texted me back. What? You know, does that mean you don't care? See, expectations do something really crazy. Expectations draw unrealistic conclusions based on what they expected to happen. So I'm encouraging you, guys, don't eat too much honey. It'll make you sick. Listen to your friend's rhythm before you make them sick, okay? Then Proverbs 25.20 says, 
Like one who takes away a garment on a cold day, which that means you're freezing and you took away my coat, or poured vinegar on a soda, which is sour, is one who sings songs to a heavy heart. In other words, I'm not just pushing the expectations out of my heart to make room for who you are rather than who am I expecting you to be. I'm also recognizing that you have a right to be where you are. In other words, a good friend is not Mary Poppins. All right, just a spoonful of sugar. You know, or what's the critter in Lion King that sings, what's that song? Yes, which Swahili means... Somebody's got to know it. Is there anybody here under the age of 15? Yeah, there are no worries. See, when I come to my friend and say, hey, I see you're going through a hard time. Hey, get over it, dude. Come on, man. Let's just go hang out. Let's have a fun time. Let me sing a song. Let me sing a song. I'm not going to allow you to be where you are. You can't be there because I don't want to be there. Now get out of that and let's go. As a good friend, I not only have to make room for where you're at in my life, I actually have to be vulnerable enough to let where you are at matter to me. The only example I can really think of is uh, if you're a parent here today, you know immediately what I'm talking about. Because when your kids are sad, it's hard. When your kids are going through a hard time, it hurts. When your kids are being mistreated, it's as if somebody has mistreated you. Right, parents? And that's what it's like to be a friend. If you're hurting, I'm not just sensitive to the fact that you're hurting and going, ooh, not going to sing around you. It means that when you're hurting, I'm hurting. Because I've made room for you in my heart. When you're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. When you're excited, I share in that excitement. When you have a victory, it's our victory. And when you have a defeat, it really is our defeat. That's what it means to make room for somebody in my heart. You know? Proverbs 27, 14. Kind of speaks for itself, doesn't it? Joel Walker, who is our executive pastor here that many of you may know, before he came here, he ran an outdoor adventure ministry out in Colorado with all different kinds of stuff. And I used to take uh, some of our youth out to go and do all their crazy stuff. The first time I went out there, uh, it was an interesting thing because one of his volunteers, this is how I was woken up. We were in a sleeping bag. We were in a uh, Native American Indian reservation, uh, sleeping on the floor, and it was cold out in the middle of New Mexico, all right? And uh, this is how I was woke up. Mr. Drone, it's time to wake up. And I'm opening my eyes, and there, he's handing me a cup of hot coffee with cream. I'm like, whoa, dude, thank you, man. What? Good morning. It's great to have you here. I said, how did you know I like cream in my coffee? Mr. Walker told us. How did he know? He remembered. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Isn't that a beautiful thing that I make room for you in my schedule? I make room for you in my heart because what matters to you matters to me. And I'm sensitive to that. And I got space, and I can give you space. But my love for you is not going to let you go. And when you disappear, I'm going to come looking for you. Friends do that kind of stuff. You know that, guys? Friends that are on a deep journey. And finally, and I like this one the best, friends clear the room out so that they can fight. Yeah, believe it or not. You know uh, and this may, uh, oh, it's ahead of me. Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. Here's what's remarkable about this, is that in the rhythm of this proverb, it's equating hidden love with an enemy's multiplied kisses. And what's hidden love? Is in hidden love that whole thing of, I know I need to tell you something, uh, but I'm not going to get into it with you. No, 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 no. Oh, I see something going on with you, but you know what? I just, I just don't feel comfortable talking about that. You know, I, I see 
how you're acting and treating those other people. But I'm really, I just don't think I can get involved in that because I just love you too much. You know what? My refusal to help my friend see who they are when they need to change something in their life, that's not a love for them. That's a love for me. A love for me that I'm not going to step into the arena where I might get hurt. I'm not going to step into the arena that feels unprotected. I'm not going to step in the arena where you might get mad at me. No, I'm going to protect myself, and I'm just going to give you hidden love. Kiss, 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 kiss. No, I have to be open to say, hey, we need to fight. Here come some wounds. And we, we approach it gently because this really is holy ground when we step into somebody's life. But think about the consequences. Do you think William Hung has any honest friends? I mean, honestly, like, okay, maybe you don't know who William Hung is from American Idol. You know, she bangs. All right. Or how about Snooky? Do you think any, does she have any real friends? Like, honestly, like, no. Like, we watch those shows because we're shocked by how outrageously out in left field these people are and how nobody seems to be reeling them in. Like, hey, you might want to stop tanning, you know? Or, you know what, probably sleeping around on public television is not going to work for you in the long run, you know? I mean, honestly. See, because hidden love is no different than enemy's kisses. But we have to have the courage to risk moving on to what I consider holy ground. Now, we all, some of you are fighters, you know, and I just have such respect for you because I'm, I'm a people pleaser. And fighting for me is I always have to screw up my courage, you know, hockey, to get to that place to where I can fight. But some of you, you love to fight. Like, you're like, yeah, if that's what it takes to be a friend, I got all that I need, you know. But let me encourage you with this. In Proverbs 27, 17, it says, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. We all love to hear that verse in the context of, yes, I will sharpen my friends, sensei, you know? But here's what I want you to hear it of in the context of we have to make room to fight, is that you have to make room to let yourself be sharpened by your friends. In other words, is there anybody in your life that can say something to you that you categorically completely disagree with them? If you're married, <laughs> you know, think about it. Who in your life can say to you something that you go, boom, completely disagree? I don't agree with that whatsoever. But you follow it up with this statement, but because you said it, but because you see it, you know what? I'm going to stop, and I need to spend some time thinking about that. I need to get some more counsel. Thank you for saying I don't. I completely disagree with you, and I don't see it at all. But because you said it, I, I'm going to lean myself into the grinding wheel of your love, and I'm going to let you sharpen me because that's what friends do. We trust each other with those tender places. It's hard. If you're scared, you have a good right to be scared. Because this is powerful here. It's powerful. Because there's so much possibility of getting hurt. There's so much possibility of hurting. It takes so much time. And who's got time anymore? I mean, we're just so busy. I don't have time in my schedule. You know, and being sensitive to somebody else and where they're at and kind of carrying their emotional baggage and struggling with them through life I'm having a hard enough time just struggling with myself through life. Why do I want to make room for that? Come on. And fighting, because Jesus says do it, guys. And why does he say do it? Because he's calling you to be real. And this is the beautiful thing. He's saying stop talking about transition. Start living in it. Stop talking about transformation. Live in it. And brotherly kindness helps me to participate with the divine that I can see I've been given everything I need for life and godliness. Why? And here's the beautiful thing. Because that's what Christ did. 
It's, it's the beautiful story of Jesus. Jesus made room in his life. Scripture talks about in Philippians chapter 2 that he humbled himself and he became a man. And why did he do that? Why did God take on flesh? So that he could come here and have the possibility to give. And what did he came to give? His own life. For what? For me. This is what's so radical that Jesus says, I came because I'm a friend of sinners. The uglier you are, the more open he is to his friendship with you. That's outrageous. Matter of fact, people threw stones and they hated him because of the people that he'd befriended. And we read that and we go, wow, those are just such undesirable people. He put that in there because of us. We're the undesirables. And yet Jesus said, you're the ones that I want to be friends with. And he paid with his life. But then when he rose again to newness of life and he's calling us into his kingdom, he does something beautiful. He calls us brothers. He calls us brothers and he sets us free by redeeming us and making us holy. See, Jesus is the one who's patient with us. Jesus is the one who understands us. Jesus isn't confused about what's going on inside of you. And Jesus isn't confused about what you're going through right now as I talk about this message. He understands. And it's Jesus who says, I will always let you in and I will never let you go. There is no place we can go that we can be separated from him. But this journey of being real, it's hard. There's a story that uh, I was reading last night some of my serious theological reading. It was a book called The Velveteen Rabbit. Uh, it's a children's book, and it's the story of a rabbit that uh, becomes the property of a little boy, and he's in a room full of multiple toys and multiple stuffed animals, and some wind up, and some are just cushiony, soft, squeezable. And throughout the story, uh, you know, the little boy, you know, mistreats, you know, gets some dirty, does all kinds of stuff, finally gets uh, comes down with some disease to where he's contagious and the poor rabbit is consigned to the back of the shed where he's thrown into a pile to be burned with the rest of the toys. Such a depressing children's book when you think about it, you know? But in this story, the rabbit's trying to figure out what life is all about. And he's trying to figure out, am I real or am I not real? And he's talking to uh, the old worn horse. And this horse has lost his hair, and he doesn't have any hair left in his tail, and he's, I think he's missing an eye, and, but he's the wise sage of the stuffed animals because he's been there the longest. And so he goes to this wise sage to ask him the question, what is real? Asked the rabbit one day when they were lying side by side near the nursery fender before Nana came to tidy the room. Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and stick out handles? Real isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you when a child loves you for a long, long time. Not just to play with, but really loves you. Then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real... You don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asked, or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You, be, you become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have, the careful, or have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out. And you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all. Listen to this, Midtown. Because once you're real, you can't be ugly. Except to people who don't understand. You know what my friends do? My friends take the mirror of the gospel and they shine it to me. And they go, do you see how beautiful you are? Why do you act so ugly? My friends take the mirror of the gospel and they shine it up to me. They say, do you see how powerful you are in Christ? 
Why do you lift as if you have no power? My friends take the mirror of the gospel and they hold it up to me and they say, do you see who you are? Because we do. And here's the most powerful thing, guys. My friends, they wait. You know what they wait for? For me to hold the mirror up to them and say, do you see how magnificent you are? Why do you sin? Do you see how beautiful you are? Why do we do that? Because Christ in us, the hope of glory, is doing it. That's why we need this. That's why in this, I participate with this, and I see all of this. You don't have the option not to do this. If you're alone today, I feel your pain. You need to pray, God, give me eyes to see who you're bringing shoulder to shoulder with me. If you've been hurt today, I feel your pain. Don't walk away from it. If you are selfish today and you say, I can't find anybody that loves me the way that I want to be loved, get over it. Repent and step into it. Because as we experience this, we will more fully experience this. Because we will be real. Right? Let me pray for us. Lord, Oh, Lord, we want to be real. But we want to be real with all our eyes and hair intact. We don't want to go through sometimes the difficult struggles of being loved and loving. Sometimes it's hard, Father, to uh, just to step back up and say, once again, I'll try to do that. Or to step out of loneliness and believe that you would have that for us. So, Lord, as we, as we sing this song about your love, let it be the foundation for how we even think about loving other people or letting them love us. Is that because you loved, we can love. 